Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Dear Young Rocker is more than just a podcast about music. It's a memoir of how it feels to survive high school when you don't fit in and the freeing feeling of picking up a guitar for the first time. It's also advice for anyone who is or was young and has ever felt weird or alone. Dear Young Rocker is written and narrated by me, Chelsea Erson, executive produced by Jake Brennan, and comes to you from Double Elvis Productions. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to Movie Crush. This is Chuck coming to you from the home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. Got Noel over on my left, and this week uh, we had Mr. Kevin Pollock in the studio. And a little backstory here, Josh and I did a live Stuff You Should Know at the LA Podcast Festival a couple of years ago, and literally during the middle of this uh, show... Uh, I, we were drinking water on stage out of a glass and I didn't realize my water had gotten low and Kevin Pollack jumps on our stage. Uh, and I think this is even in the episode, the Rodney Dangerfield episode and, uh, pours water for me from a water pitcher. I had no idea he listened to the show. Um, been a big fan of his for a long time, obviously from everything from a few good men to usual suspects. And, uh, it was just sort of one of those moments where we were like, wow. Kevin Pollack is on stage all of a sudden. Uh, then we met afterward and he and his, uh, he and his significant other, uh, Jamie or big stuff you should know fans. So that was just a delight for us to know. And flash forward to, uh, now put out the call for movie crush guests. And, uh, lo and behold, I get a email from Kevin Pollack that said, Hey, I'm in Atlanta doing a movie and, um, I can do this tomorrow. And that's it's, it was as easy as that. So all of a sudden, Kevin Pollack is in here. Uh, we talked about the in-laws, the great uh, original in-laws movie, one of the classic 70s comedies. It really has that classic 70s comedy feel to uh, stars Alan Arkin and Peter Falk. Um, just a great comedy pairing there. Alan Arkin at times and Kevin, I chat about this, plays a little bit of the straight guy for the most part. Um, but they sort of swap positions in and out. Uh, it is about, and this is, this is not the Michael Douglas remake. Don't want to knock that movie because I haven't seen it, but I'm always a big fan of the originals almost every time. Uh, but this is a movie about, uh, these in-laws, uh, Peter Falk and Alan Arkin are two men whose, uh, daughter and son are getting married and they finally meet each other. And Alan Arkin is a mild mannered dentist and Peter Falk is, uh, well, he's, he's a, a shadowy guy and I don't think it's quite clear exactly what he does. At first, which is where a lot of the comedy comes from, but hijinks ensue, obviously, and um, 
you will just hear a lot of me giggling in this episode as Kevin Pollack uh, does his range of impressions from Johnny Carson to Alan Arkin. And I could just listen to that stuff all day. And it was really, really fun conversation. So here we go with Kevin Pollack on The In-Laws. I was doing Grumpy Old Men in the uh, greater Minneapolis St. Paul area. Oh, I forgot you were in that. How dare you? And um, <laughs> I, I play Walter Matthau's son in both movies. Yeah, so, yeah. so when we went to do the first one, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon's people, uh-huh. their reps, you know, you, they do the advan- advance work to find the best hotel suite for, the, for their clients. Yeah. Turns out there was only one amazing presidential suite that they're – Reps deemed worthy. Where did you guys shoot that? Minneapolis, St. Paul. Okay. Um, and so while they were bickering, Walter and Jack found out about this. And, and they also found out there was another bedroom at the far end of this giant suite. It had like a baby grand piano in the middle and mm-hmm. a kitchen. It was ridiculous. So they agreed to live in this suite together. The odd couple lived together. Wow. While making – Exactly. And uh, That's they, w- awesome. they would invite some of us up, Daryl Hannah, Buck Henry, or just Meredith, myself, uh-huh. on a couple of occasions, you know, and there'd be Jack Lemon playing the piano. It was just wow. crazy. Well, one of those very few occasions was that Oscars telecast. And they gathered us, uh, and Margaret and her husband was there. Oh, wow. And um, we're watching the telecast. And so if you remember, that category was four brilliant British actresses. Mm-hmm. And Marissa Tomei. Right. So when they're saying the nominations, listing them, everyone, actors gathered in Jack Lemmon, Matthew, uh, Walter Matthau's suite were picking which one of the British actresses they favored based on having worked with them. I worked with Joan Plowright in uh-huh. Barry Levinson's movie Avalon and Daryl Hannah or Vanessa Redgrave. And they're all, everyone's talking about Walter Matthau worked with, um, Maggie Smith. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, and the winner is Marissa Tomei. Well, <laughs> there is a instant explosive cacophony of... Holy shit. I don't believe this. Yeah, yeah. Um, people were outraged. Like something uh-huh. real had happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But really going nuts. And Mathau, I remember his hands resting on the armrests of a comfy chair about five feet in front of the TV, is not moving or saying a word, while everyone around him is losing their shit like monkeys. And he's just staring straight ahead, like the true great comic he was, his timing impeccable. He waited for everyone to calm down. The room was silent, finally, which took many minutes. And he waited for that first moment of silence, <laughs> yeah. looking straight straight ahead at the TV and says to the TV, I'll sell my Oscar for 35 cents. That was his protest. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was fucking beautiful. That was a good math out, too. Well, well uh, you're an impressionist. I I do a couple of voices. That's great. Man, I can't believe. I mean, it's astounding to share the screen with those guys. Yes, it was. It was uh, studying at the feet of, of absolute greatness. And also, for a kid growing up with fantasies of being a character actor, yeah. not a movie star, but a character actor. And I sort of collected character actors, my favorites, you know. Uh-huh. Um. Well, Matthau and Lemon were character actors who got to be movie stars. Right. But their work was more in tune yeah, for to, sure. to character actors, you know. Matthau with that face of a, of a hound dog, you know. Yeah. I mean, he looked 
Like you thought he would look. 50 when he was 20. Yeah. Looked 65 years old at birth. Um, and then uh, Jack Lemon was, but they're both sweet and funny and, and enga- gregarious and, and you're in the shadow of greatness. I'm yeah. Not. Unbelievable. <clears throat> I remember I was doing off camera lines one day and with uh, Jack Lemon. Uh, for your audience not familiar with the term. So you're in a, two people are in a scene mm-hmm. and they'll cover it in a side uh, view, point of view, two shot, and then also cover it over the shoulder of each person looking at the person they're talking to. Yeah. And in that case, when it's over your shoulder, you are off camera. Your face is next to the camera so that the person you're talking to is looking at you and the right. camera's getting coverage of them. So I was off camera for Jack. And Jack Lemon said, "Are you? Are you? I do a horrible impression of him. I got to hear it though. weirdly." <laughs> he said, "Are you sure you don't mind doing uh, doing our camera work, kid?" I said, "No, of course I don't mind." Well, you know, Marilyn never liked it. And oh I my thought, god, he's talking about Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> so every story he told, uh-huh. with not trying to name drop, it's just these are the people that yeah. are in his story, right? Uh, yeah, just extraordinary. I just saw for the first time the other day, uh, "Save the Tiger." Oh man, which I had never seen before. It was just, um, I mean, it's, I, I think I, it's I a saw clinic. it. Because I watched the documentary on um, John Alvaldson on a plane flight. There's a documentary out about him. Mainly focuses on like Rocky and Karate Kid. But basically the whole point of the documentary is like, why isn't he a household name? Yeah. One of the great directors. I can't even believe there's a documentary on him. He's such a not a household name. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. Um, But I, I realized I hadn't seen Save the Tiger. So I watched that the other night. So good. It's an acting clinic. Yeah. And Lemon, man. Just yep. the apartment's one of my favorite all time movies. Yeah. And uh it's just I can't believe you get to what a life. Ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And you it seemed like you got into and I know we're here to talk about a, a specific movie, which we'll get to. But sure. I've got you in here. I've got to like grill you a little That's bit. That's right. Uh from being a stand up, it seemed like you got work in movies pretty quickly and steadily. Like that's not a common thing. Yeah, you know, I, I was very fortunate early on to get a couple seminal films. But that was your aim, was to be an actor? Well, I started doing stand-up when I was 10, and professionally I was doing it at 17, and then really like a touring pro, but I never toured that much. Uh, but that level of competence yeah. by 2021. 20, um, and uh, r- rose to the top of stand-up in San Francisco uh-huh. until I was about 26, and that's when I moved to L.A. And, and then, that was a really good uh, comedy scene, too. Oh, man, one of the best in the world, always. Uh, but there, were, I guess when I was a kid, my mom would tell me that I would walk out of seeing a movie with her young, six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. And I would not impersonate, but I would act like one of the people in the film. Yeah. Not even the actor, but the character they were playing. Uh-huh. Like a Zelig kind of thing. Oh, yeah. It's a Woody Allen reference to a movie of his where he played a character who just takes on the affectations uh-huh. and accents of anyone he's around subconsciously. I still do that. Jamie loves to give me shit about it. I can't help it. <laughs> I've always kind of done that, too. Just right? My brother and I both have always had a mimicry thing. Yeah. Like, we're not talented, but... We've always done voices and right. repeated lines back to the movie that we've I think just it, heard. And it's a way that people share and connect on uh-huh. on TV and movies. Yeah, for sure. It's quote lines, but also if you can get the rhythm right. Yeah. Uh, so there was this fantasy about being an actor. I think pretty early. 
But I hated school, so I never went to an acting class. Right. And even when I moved to L.A. to pursue acting, that was the whole point of moving there. Yeah. Um, the whole idea was I'm going to. I'm going to showcase my stand-up at, at the improv where I've heard directors and casting directors will go and see comedians uh-huh. and then think about them for TV and movies. Right. And all people I was starting to meet and get to know, famous comedians in L.A., um, would tell me, yeah, get into an acting class. But I just hated. Yeah. Also, I'm now old enough to acknowledge that I was probably very afraid that I would get into an acting class and the instructor would say, you're horrible. Right. You should never, ever do this. Yeah. And in fact, the first potential manager I met with who had seen me at the improv um, <clears throat> said, come to my office. I'll give you a scene to read and we'll see what you've got. Uh-huh. You know. And I read the scene and she said, well, listen, um, acting's not for everyone. <laughs> you know, the stand-up seems to be going well. Yeah. Yes, it is. I said, she said, okay, well. And it was it was crushing because I was already convinced because I always did impersonations. Yeah. And that's kind of how I learned to act because it was never just turn around and pull back your hair and do Jack Nicholson. I would sort of create from the shoes to the uh-huh. top of your head possession, I would call it. Yeah. I mean, those are the best impressions. Yeah. Very physical. Yeah. And so I think I, I was subconsciously learning how to act, which is to break down a character. Right. And I just had to learn how to break down a scene. Uh-huh. Um, Dana Carvey and I started out in the stand-up scene of San Francisco in the late 70s, right. around the same time. And he had moved to L.A. maybe six, eight months before me. So he was giving me tips on uh-huh. how to break down a scene because uh, neither one of us wanted to go to an acting class. You know? And you still have never been to an acting I'm class? I'm not proud of it. It just happens <laughs> to be a fact. I learned the best way possible, yeah. which is on a set. On the job. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, and you, in- interestingly, uh, this is a m- show about favorite movies – and I would hazard to say that Usual Suspects is the favorite movie of uh, more than one person out there. <laughs> wow! So you're really hedging your bet there. You're you're in a you are in <laughs> you're on a very tight limb. <laughs> no, I think a lot of people fragile uh, branch. Yes, you're, yes, you're, yes. In, you're in a favorite movie of folks. Well, that's what I meant by early on. I was a part of a few seminal films. Um, uh, prior to A Few Good Men, which was the big crossing over into getting offers instead of having to audition. Right. Which for any actor is kind of a goal line. Sure. To break. I can't imagine auditioning. What a hell. Oh, it's the worst. That must be. Yeah. I, I put out a book a couple of years ago. I broke off in one chapter where I just talked about how the auditioning process is designed to fail. Uh-huh. Now that I'm directing uh, movies, I, I and I've produced for a while, so I've kind of known this. If you come into audition for a scene, mm-hmm. the level of confidence you have is almost the antithesis of the confidence you'll have when you have the job. Like right. polar opposite. Yeah. So how am I ever going to know what you're capable of? Yeah. When I the last little movie I directed, um, which is now available on Netflix. What's it called? The Late Bloomer. Um. I would just call and hired people on the phone because I just didn't want people to that you knew were good. Auditioned anyone? You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, like Kumail Nanjiani and Beck Bennett and yeah, J.K. Simmons and Jane Lynch and Maria Bello and done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Extraordinary time. Brittany Snow and this kid Johnny Simmons, who's the center of the story, and who you know he he he. I, I had to pick our lead out of a small handful of potential 
you know, up and comers. I just, again, I couldn't audition any of them. I just got on the phone or yeah. Skyped and got a sense of them. Right. Because as an actor, I just know every time I get offered something, it's like, well, they could have gone to 17 different people. Uh-huh. It's a kind of a fluke that I ended up being chosen. And a lot of times I'll say to the director, just do me a favor, never tell me who you went to first. Right. And who wasn't available. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they'll all lie and say, no, 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 you were who right. I had in mind. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't. Uh, uh, yeah. So, um, auditioning is horrible and terrible. And, and to get to the place where offers are coming in after a few good men, as I said, which would be 25 in December. That's so sick. I know. It seems like I was 17. Um, <laughs> uh, prior to that, you know, I, Barry Levinson's movie Avalon was a big deal. It was right after he did Rain Man. Right. But it was a very small success in, in the sense that people who saw it were very passionate about it. Yeah. And, but most people didn't see it. But also L.A. Story, the Steve Martin movie. Oh, yeah. I was in that. Uh-huh. Ricochet, the Denzel Washington movie. So yeah. I did I did these high-profile films in really small parts, but got a sense of what that was and what that meant. You yeah. Know? You've always worked with great directors, too, it seems like. That's Crazy. Amazing. Crazy good fortune there. Yeah. Yeah. Ron Howard and Willow was one of the first movies yeah. I did. Um, well, Rob Reiner. Rarely recognized from Willow, by the way. Rick Overton and I play these little seven-inch tall brownies. Oh, really? Brownie characters. This way! No, this way! <laughs> That's for your audience who knows Willow. They're religious followers of that as well. Oh, um, I'm sure. So, so by the time I got to A Few Good Men, I really had yeah had worked with some great directors. and That's a heavyweight set. And, and worked with. And then they get there, and it's just movie stars everywhere you look. Yeah. I'm like, where's Waldo in that cast? And Yeah. Um, so that and, – and then only – Two years later, 94, mm-hmm. with Suspects and Casino, same year. Yeah. So, you know, that little grouping right there, too. it's just over. I'm a dramatic actor. Forget yeah. your plans. Forget your aspirations uh-huh. of being Michael Keaton from Night Shift, being right. a comedic <laughs> yeah. juggernaut. That was the fantasy. Yeah. I was a character actor in drama like that. Yeah, Usual Suspects is so great because it was a uh, – it was a uh, – for all the, you dudes, it was you were all tough guys. It wasn't like uh, like unless you, you're a friend of mine, and then you laughed uncontrollably at me being a badass in the movie. <laughs> my friends never stopped busting my balls when I got up in Stephen Baldwin's face. I bought it and said, "Do you want to dance?" My friends yeah. laughed themselves. That's to a great peed. line. But all the characters are just all tough guys. It wasn't like one of these things where like, well, there was the nerd and there was the the one guy like this. Like it was a collection of tough guys. Yeah, put yeah. together in a room, which I think yeah, is technically my character was a sociopath. Yeah, they all were. Yeah. Yes, yes, they were. You know? Yeah. I always tell people that the movie was lightning in a bottle. And if you... Such a great movie. If you need further proof, uh, you needn't look further than the fact that Stephen Baldwin is great in the film. (laughs) That's... And he really is. He's terrific. No, he is. Uh, I wasn't going to be the one to say it, but sure. Oh, I love... I I busted his ball so badly in my book. Well, listen, I'm just reporting what happened. Right. When I met him the first time he was wearing leather pants, I should qualify. He had not arrived on a motorcycle or a horse. Uh-huh. He was just wearing leather pants. And I said, oh, your brother stole your food at every meal, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, uh, I'm digressing far too much. So, yeah, I, I became this dramatic actor, and the, and the childhood fantasy was to be in comedies and movies and you know, Woody Allen, movie, yeah. maybe something like that. Albert Brooks was a oh, true yeah. hero of mine who, when we get to my movie choice, we can uh-huh. talk about the 
uh, horrific reimagining of of my favorite film that happened only what ten years ago? We think. Yeah, two thousand three. Um, okay. So yeah, let's talk about the in laws. This was, um, and I will say that when you uh, uh, we were texting about what your favorite movie is, and um, you said, "How about either Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid." Which is it? a perfect film also. Yeah. Um, and we can chat about that for a sec too. I saw it 12 times in the theater as a kid. Really? I just wanted to be back in that world. Yeah. It's astonishing, romanticized, beautiful actors. It may be one of the first buddy movies in that kind of true sense. Gotta be. Gotta be, yeah. Maybe there was something else before that, but. And I have a photo of Catherine Ross, the female lead of the film, on mm. my phone to show people yeah. what the perfect woman looks like. Yeah, Catherine Ross and her face uh, in that movie. Yeah, and the graduate too. Yeah, of course. Like, I had such a crush on her in of that. Of course. But it's funny when you mentioned Anne Margaret before. Yeah. I, I had a little like uh, the hair on my neck stood up a little bit because Anne Margaret to me is is one of the most beautiful women. Carnal knowledge to ever live. Yeah. Oh my God. Another oh. great movie. Oh, I mean all the great stuff she did, but Carnal Knowledge is when you yeah. saw a little more skin than you were thinking you might. Uh, yeah, sure. And the Getaway. Uh, getaway? No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. That was somebody else. Um, yeah, yeah. And and Margaret was unbelievably sweet and lovely and and fantastic to work with. And and um, yes, our childhood uh, fantasies were. And Margaret spent some time there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Here's the thing: saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball, because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly join us. That'd be crazy. But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please join us on Spotify. Visit Spotify.com slash last podcast to listen free. The 70s films were just so... Uh, Better. It was just such a... Yeah. <laughs> well, they were... Such a great time. Yeah. There was a lot of still hold over these big, splashy movies well, before the transition. And then mm-hmm. books have been written about this. But um, studio, so-called studio movies weren't so um, cookie-cutter. They were still very... Yeah. Uh, sort of original filmmaking and stylized. Yeah. It seemed like they made movies for the right reasons. Yeah. Which was, here's a great story to tell. Yeah. I mean, people who loved Butch Cassidy and Kid will argue, what the fuck is the raindrops keep falling on my head scene? Yeah. About? Why does that have to be there? <laughs> and I will tell you, when you're 12 years old, it worked. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. It is, I mean, it's a little kind of goofy looking back, maybe, that one scene, but. But we needed to see those two spend time together. Yeah. And then when he comes back to the house and Redford comes out in his underwear uh-huh. and sees that they were together and says, uh, hey, what are you doing, my girl? Get your own. And he says, uh, ah, you, I finally, he scratches his back and before he goes back in the house and he goes, eh, keep her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was just such a, yeah, magical. So, uh, 
the in-laws, it was a tough choice. I gave you two choices. You had to make the choice. Yeah. The in-laws or Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. And you said the in-laws because? Because I had not seen it. Ah. That's the dirty secret. And then were you forced to see it before we talked? No, you still haven't seen it. No, I watched it this morning. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Oh, you're so welcome. I know. Thank you. Seriously. And I I did want to say, though, I sent you a text saying, uh, oh, great. Let's go with the in-laws. I love Michael Douglas. Uh, referring to the uh, reimagining, remake. and I, I wanted to let it, and even told you this, want to let it hang out there for a bit, and I'm glad make you, you didn't. wonder. But then I thought no, because then when I say I was kidding, I, I don't know if he'll believe me or not. That's right. <laughs> There's a chance I wouldn't have. Right. If you had left enough time, because I'm just covering my ass. It, on that it's one. dangerous when you don't know someone well enough for them uh-huh. not to right. know your sense of humor <laughs> and your timing. Right. But I will, I give big credit and big props to uh, taking a stab at that joke. I appreciate it. And what's brutal for me is my love of Albert Brooks. I know. And uh, I'm a true hero. Same. In every, uh, in fact, I almost said modern romance because. Mm, what a movie. It's um, for the romantically challenged uh, people and relationship challenged men. Um, it's a cathartic. It's so funny. Yeah. And forces you to live in the eyes of this. Brutally jealous, possessive mm-hmm. idiot who, uh, yeah. So I, I could, I, the truth is I can quote Albert Brooks movies more than any other movies. So yeah. it's kind of weird that I didn't pick one of those. But I cheated in picking The In-Laws. Not only is it, do I tell people it's my favorite comedy of all time, but I had a, a, one of the two stars, Alan Arkin, mm. on my chat show and had him tell the story of how the movie got made. Oh, my God. Which I can now share with you. And then, of course, I ran into Peter Falk after impersonating him on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. <laughs> yeah, I, t- I, I kind of tell the story in my act now about doing Peter Falk on The Tonight Show because it ge- it's the perfect example of me taking advantage of someone's love of the actual person. Yeah. Because it took me 25, 30 years of doing impressions before I realized it's a parlor trick. Right. That is based on the following premise. If I can think of someone you love. Mm-hmm. A famous person, and I can recreate them in front of you. I will steal the affection you have for the actual person yeah. in a second. So if I thought you watched Columbo, and I say, "Oh, geez, I'm sorry, I don't mean to <laughs> be a patient." Now, what Charles Chuck is laughing at is I trained myself and taught myself to move just one eye. That's because very Peter impressive. Falk, which does not play well in a podcast, but Peter Falk was very open about having a glass eye. Uh huh. Oh, is that what it was? And when Columbo was on TV, I remember being a kid, reading in TV Guide. Uh-huh. He had an accident when he was three, and he had a glass eye his whole life. Uh-huh. And he told a couple stories. One of them stays with me. When he was in Little League, he slid into second base. The ump called him out. He popped out his eye and handed it to the ump and said, <laughs> you clearly need this more than I do. <laughs> so when I finally got a chance to be on The Tonight Show... This is just going to be a series of digressions. No, this, this, entire... this is the show. Okay, good. Because this is all I'm capable of. Um, I finally got a chance to be on The Tonight Show as an actor from mm-hmm. Willow, even though I dreamt about doing it as a stand-up. Um, and there's a pre-interview, spoiler alert, where they say, what do you, what stories do you want to tell? So they can help the host, in this case, Johnny Carson, right. best set up your stories. That's why Johnny would say, now, I understand you went skiing with the family. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? <laughs> and then you would tell your skiing story. So in that pre-interview, the great gatekeeper, famous to many comedians, Jim McCauley, said, you know, what do you want? 
to talk about. And I said, the first question, just have Johnny ask me if I do impersonations. Uh-huh. Now, I watched the Carson show religiously. Yeah, same here. Growing up. Uh-huh. And if you did, you know he loved Peter Falk. He yeah. had him on all the time. Uh-huh. And there were certain guests like Burt Reynolds and a few where he had them on all the time because he loved them. Uh-huh. And in the case of Peter Falk, Peter was funny without trying to be. Yeah. Because he was a little eccentric and nutty and could digress in a, in such a humorous way. And you just went with him on these journeys. And uh, so knowing that Carson loved Peter Falk and knowing that Carson loved impressions, uh-huh. he did them himself. I was overprepared for that first appearance <laughs> and that first question yeah. when, in fact, I stood behind the curtain that I'd seen so many famous people walk through oh, yeah. my whole life and the band's playing their way to commercial. Yeah. And I'm thinking when I when when, the, when I walk out there, do I wave to Doc? Don't be an asshole. You don't know Doc. Don't wave to Doc. How old are you? Uh, 29. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. 28. Don't wave to Doc. Don't be that jerk. Right. Uh. And so the band winds down, mm-hmm. they come back from commercial, and I hear Carson say, "My Welcome back, folks. Uh, my next guest is an actor. He's got a new movie out called Willow. Ron Howard directed the picture. Uh, and they tell me backstage he's also a comedian, so we'll ask him about that. Please welcome Kevin Pollack. <laughs> and Jim McCauley, the gatekeeper, is the one who actually pulls the curtain back for you. And you walk through, and I did not wave the doc. I said, don't be that asshole. Right. You'll do that next time, and I did. Walk straight to Carson. And uh, Johnny would stay at the throne at the desk mm-hmm. and let you pass in front of him before sitting to his right. Unlike Leno, who would sort of dance out from behind the yeah, desk yeah. to greet you halfway. Uh-huh. Hey, good to see you. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> right. So Carson would stay at the desk, and I'd pass in front of him, and i sit down. And there's Ed, obviously. There's Ed. Right? Bigger than life. Oh, yeah, in every way. And, and stinking of hooch. And, uh, <laughs> and Carson says... Uh, now, Kevin, we'll we'll talk about Willow in just a second. Somebody told me uh, backstage that you do impersonations. Is that right? <laughs> and without missing a beat, I crossed my eyes. Yeah. And I raised one hand like Peter Falk is Columbo, and I said, Johnny, that's a bold-faced lie. <laughs> I don't know who told you that. And he was laughing so hard, uh-huh. he pushed himself away from the desk, clutching his chest. Oh, man. That, that, that thing that you had seen Johnny do uh-huh. when other people made him laugh. And it was... Truly, you can take me now. Yeah. Moment. You could retire. And uh, I, I was back on the show two or three times a year until he retired. And Man. I promise you. Amazing. I promise you. It's because I led with Peter Falk and I knew uh-huh. he loved Peter Falk. And right. I took advantage yeah. of his affection for the actual person. Man. Yeah. Unbelievable. And so three months later in the produce section at Ralph's grocery store in Los Angeles, I was accosted by Peter Falk. No way. Who had seen the appearance uh-huh. and asked me, how do you do that with your eye? <laughs> Me, I understand, but how do you do that? And we became friendly. Wow. So The In-Laws is cheating. Yes, it's my favorite comedy, and I can quote almost from beginning to end, but it stars two of my heroes, Uh both of which I got to meet. Right. And in the case of Alan Arden, got to work with on a movie called Indian Summer. Oh, yeah. I remember that movie. uh, I ingratiated myself to him by doing Peter Falk on the set of Indian Summer. That was a great movie. I sort of followed it. Indian Summer was fun, yeah. I sort of followed Alan Arkin around the set like a puppy dog. Uh Anything to be near him. Um, And then one day he turned on me. He'd had enough. Uh (laughs) You know what? Get away from me, okay? (laughs) 
It's not funny and it's not cute. You're a strange little man. I'm trying to go to the bathroom. I'd rather do it alone. Oh man! And you just so saw great. the movie this morning, so uh-huh. this must be blowing your mind. Yeah, yeah. I I'd, I could hear impressions. That's all it. Day the long. wedding's off. <laughs> Titi fly swoop swoop down and pick up little babies, and their beaks. There's red tape in the bush. <laughs> There's red tape in the bush. There's red tape in the bush. One of the great lines. So, uh, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with, with well, Alan Arkin telling me how the movie got put together? Yeah. Well, quickly, just yes, uh, let's for go those over of you a out there things. that don't know The In-Laws, uh, 1979, directed by Arthur Hiller, great Arthur Hiller. Mm. So I had Alan Arkin on the chat show. And um, did I mention I have this live streaming video <laughs> chat show? Um, and uh, I say, okay, The In-Laws is my favorite movie. You have to tell me how this happened. It's very strange. I was sitting home one night. <laughs> And uh, I was watching a talk show, can't remember which one, and um, Peter Falk was a guest. And I <laughs> I was laughing so uncontrollably at this guy. You know, I didn't know his work. I just, I uh, he was killing me. And I had a little juice at Warner Brothers at the time, so I, <laughs> I, I literally picked up the phone in bed. And I called the head of the uh, studio. I said, listen, I want to do a movie with Peter Falk. And he said, what's the movie? I said, I don't, I, I don't know. I just want to do a movie with Peter Falk. Yeah. He's, he's, I think we'd be good together. And the direct, and the studio chief said, well, what's the story? He said, I don't know. We don't get along. Um, <laughs> he makes me crazy. And the studio chief said, that's it? That's the movie? Well, that's a, yeah, yes. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll get a writer. We'll come back to you. Yeah. All right. So I called Andrew Bergman because, Andy, because he had written an early draft of Blazing Saddles that I was sent. And it may still be the, the funniest thing I've ever read in my life because when the sheriff eventually becomes the sheriff, but when that, fella comes riding into town the black fella um in in andy's script he was like a cab calloway kind of jazz man from the 40s and it was completely different than than the blazing saddles you know and i i I promise you it's the funniest thing anyone's ever written Uh uh-huh so I was so fond of him that I called him and I said, I want to do a movie with Peter Falk. And Andy said, I love Peter Falk. And and I said, I know, he's great, he's hilarious. We should do a movie together and you should write it. And Andy said, what's the story? I said, I don't know, we don't get along, he makes me crazy. <laughs> That's kind of and Andy movie. said, I got it, Yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you. And he sent me a draft of the script. And I'm telling you, 90% of what the movie is was that first draft. Oh, wow. I know. It blew my mind. Yeah. And because uh, it's it's page turner funny. Oh, yeah. So then I asked him, there's so many moments you remember from that movie. So, quote, you know, everyone remembers Serpentine Shell. I get yelled <laughs> that one all the time when I start doing Peter Falk. Yeah. Or Alan Arkin. But they don't remember little things like they're driving in that South American country. Uh-huh. In the car. And Peter Falk says, Cheryl, next time we're here, remind me. They got a chicken salad sandwich. (laughs) They put it on a hard roll. They serve it with orange juice. Grande. You know, Uh a big one. (laughs) 
<laughs> Uh-oh, pigs. Was it pigs or sheep that are in the road? It was uh, pigs because yeah. Alan Arkin yeah. has the great line. Go ahead. I don't remember the Alan Arkin It line. was the uh, – well, he's one of the great deadpan actors yes. of all time, of course. And the uh, the line is, don't they squeal when they die? <laughs> yes. So, so, so I said to Alan Arkin – I, I read I said that line from memory to him, mm-hmm. and, and he said, "You want to know something funny about that line? Uh, we didn't improvise much. You know, it was all written beautifully. But that line, Peter had said to me at the craft service table about where we were shooting. Uh-huh. It was a real life moment. He said those exact words to me about the chicken sandwich. Alan, next time we're here, <laughs> remind me." Because there's this place, they have a chicken salad sandwich. <laughs> it, they make it with orange juice, a grande, you know, a big one. <laughs> and I said, because there was nothing written in the car. We were just driving. And yeah. then he says, uh-oh, pigs. And then I say that my line. Yeah. But so I said to Peter, you have to say what you just said to me at craft service when we're uh-huh. in the car. And that's why that line is in the movie. Wow. How fucking great is that? So that was one of the improv lines. Well. One uh, of the few. Yeah. I would say it's an ad. Right. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Join us as we hear from the world's greatest athletes, coaches, and trainers as they discuss how they utilize training, competition, and recovery to improve their performance and push through. Hall of Fame women's basketball coach Muffin McGraw has established the culture of winning through her historic 35-season career at Notre Dame. But this season, Coach and her team are trying everything to stay afloat against a losing record. Here's Coach McGraw. I've never been in this situation before of having lost five starters. And I was just thinking the other day, you know how when you're going through things and, and the stress of being number one and being the team to beat and being every game knowing you're supposed to win, that that really weighs heavy on your shoulders. And I, I think I said at one point, wouldn't it be great to be the underdog again? And my husband said, be careful what you wish for. And here we are. Listen to The Only Way Is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcast. Alan Arkin just slays me in this movie. and It's, it's, the dr- it's a comedy clinic, I'm telling you. It is, and the two of them together, it's um, they're both kind of the straight man in a way. I mean, Arkin's a little bit over the top well, at as times, much as he ever gets. They're also the crazy one. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, that's true. They kind of reverse roles. They, but they, you're right. They do. They both play the best kind of comedy, which is play it real. Yeah. Play the drama of the comedy. Uh-huh. Don't lean into anything you think is funny. And uh, little tiny moments, like when he's when Alan Arkin is sent to Peter Falk's office to to fetch. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I don't remember what he was sent to fetch. He's uh, to out of the safe. Out of the, the safe, uh, and the right by the safe is money print. Uh, a, yeah. The, from the mint. Yeah. They have these plates. That's right. To make uh, money. And so he's by the safe. There's a picture of John F. Kennedy it's signed to Peter Falk's character. Thanks for the Bay of Pigs. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's something about um, we can't win them all or wish we could have, you know, yeah. done this one. And he asked him later and he said it was the Bay of Pigs. Yeah. So Alan Arkin looks at that by himself. And it's a tiny little comedy moment, I think. Uh-huh. My memory is that he just looks at him and went, huh. Yeah. <laughs> because he, he thinks he's insane. He thinks he's yeah. nuts and he, he doesn't believe anything he says. Uh-huh. 
And that's one of those tiny little moments where he has to kind of go, oh, okay, maybe he really is what he says. Yeah, Arkin had a bunch of moments like that where it was either just one word or just a facial expression. Yeah. Uh, the one I'm thinking of is when he's in the bathroom early on and he's brushing his teeth and his daughter's in there. And they're just kind of arguing about, you know, uh, he wants to call off the wedding because this crazy father-in-law. And she's like, Dad, we can't do this. We can't do this. She's like, you look like you're a rabid foaming at the mouth. And he looks in the mirror and he just goes, toothpaste. <laughs> it's just like a single word. Yeah. But so funny. Yeah. Or it's just a facial expression. Yeah. All through the film. Yeah. It's kind of nonstop. And uh, it's very the, subtle stuff, though. The it's, other. It's not like written jokes, you know. No. It, it's, it's all in the performance. It really is tough to to explain unless you can do the impressions. And then it's slightly helpful <laughs> when they go to finally meet the dictator brilliantly played by Richard Libertini. Yeah. And, Pepe. Um, <laughs> here's my memory of it. I, I, you saw it this morning, so I, I'm probably paraphrasing, but Peter Falk is warning Alan Arkin about the dictator. And he says, <laughs> yeah. now listen to me show. When you meet the dictator, he has a scar on his face. He's very sensitive. <laughs> so don't say it. Why would I say something? That's crazy. I'm asking you, don't say anything because he's very sensitive about the scar on his face. I'm not going to say anything. What's wrong with you? Knocking the door, they open it up. They see the scar on his face, and Alan Arkin says, "A Z." It was so good. He had a, a scar in the shape of the letter Z. Yeah, and it's just on his face. The timing of it is such yeah. a dumb joke. Of course, he's going to say it, but like the way he pulls it off, yeah. it's just amazing. Yeah. Why would why why would I say something? What are you crazy? Opens up the door. A Z? Well, that whole sequence uh, is just off Talking the charts. Talking with his hand. Yeah, he has senior, senior Pepe, yeah. and uh, he's just batshit crazy. <laughs> and then uh, just arcing in that whole scene, because at that point, he's just like, it's just fuck panicked. all this. He's panicked. panicked. He's yeah. gone a little bit over the edge. Well, they're in front of a firing squad shortly thereafter. Yeah, and so he's just kind of lost it. Yeah. And not for a moment in that movie do not believe that he's a dentist in Manhattan. Well, that's the beautiful thing about what I mean about playing the drama of the comedy. Yeah. So there are stakes in the film. There, mm -hmm. there, there are personal risks, stakes. And they keep getting heightened. Yeah. And if Alan Arkin doesn't play... A man who we believe is fearing for his life, uh -huh. while also doing ridiculous moments like a Z, right. <laughs> then the movie doesn't work, falls yeah. apart. Uh, and also, Peter Falk is very throwaway with all of his everything he says that's crazy uh -huh. is said with no emotion. Yeah, um, or, or just emphatic belief in what he's saying. Yeah, to be true. I like the moment early when he uh, initially comes to dinner yes. with the family, and he's being very charming to everyone. And it's uh, Alan Arkin. I think breathes a little sigh of relief, like, mm -hmm. "All right, this guy's maybe not so bad after all." And he goes to make the phone call in the basement, and his son just has the throwaway line, like, "Oh, dad and his mysterious phone calls," and he just like on a dime turns and loses it, you know. And it's such a moment where, right. yeah, the whole movie kind of turns from there. Yeah, it's so great. Yeah. Uh, some of my other favorite lines. Uh, see, now I just want to get you to do all these as Alan Arkin. <laughs> well, let me see it. I have flames on my car. Well, that's another <laughs> one that's 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 quoted to me by fans on the street. Yeah, because that's another great dumb joke. He goes to a car wash or something. Yeah, he's yeah he's evading in his BMW and he pulls to a car painting place. Oh, and right. of course you know it's like a screwball comedy thing that he's going to pull out and the car will be painted. 
but it comes out with uh, flames painted on it. On the side. It's yeah, like, in like two minutes. An which otherwise is, conservative car. Yeah. Which would not have flames. But then he calls... Uh, flames? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just the outrage. <laughs> he calls Peter Falk, and that's the one thing that bothers him. I have flames yeah. on my car. There are flames on my car! <laughs> and then uh, the other great line, too, is when Peter Falk said, uh, it's cut and dried. And he goes, it's not cut, it's not dried. <laughs> it's just like so basic. It's not, these aren't jokes. Right. It's just all in the performance. Yes. Well, and also just Alan Arkin has one of the best, highest level ability to play the deadpan outrage. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's but, not just yeah. um, deadpan delivery of lines. It's very specific to outrage. Yeah. That... He's a man who you can tell is a, on the edge of losing it. Uh-huh. And he's trying to keep it together. And yeah. he's forcing himself to to then be this deadpan delivery. But you know he's a uh-huh. he's a, a ticking time bomb. Yeah, and just one of the great funny voice, just speaking voices. Like he yeah. can say anything yeah. and it makes me laugh. I did, I've been doing it in my act a long time. And I had him, I invited him when he was living in New York and I did a stand-up show there. And backstage afterwards, he said, if you say, if you notice I don't stammer as much when I talk, it's because I saw you do the impression. I didn't care for it. <laughs> you always had me stammering. I don't, I don't like that. Uh, give me this one. Uh, just go with the flow. What flow? There isn't any flow. I don't remember Do you that remember one. that? No. <laughs> Peter Falk just tells me, just go with the flow. He's like, flow? What flow? What flow? There isn't any flow. <laughs> Uh, and then in the in front of the firing squad, and this was actually a very funny written line. I think the guy's about to face his death, and the first words out of his mouth are, "I've only I only had four women." <laughs> yes, it's like what every man thinks right before they die. Right, it's like the amount of ladies they. Had and then he kind of makes himself laugh at one point during that also when he oh, yeah. realizes something uh-huh. within the diatribe, the mini losing it. Uh, it, it was amazing. I was glad I got to watch it. I, I don't know why I never did. It was one of those that I, by all rights, should have seen already. Yeah, not. It, I don't. I don't know how well it did when it came out. I don't think that extraordinary. It did well. It, it did, made like thirty-five million bucks, which for, back then yeah, was a lot kind of, of a hit. Nineteen seventy-nine, you said. Yeah, and I think the budget was like eight. So sure, that's which probably good. was a lot. Yeah, in seventy-nine. Um, but I, you know, that kind of movie has a life because people turn other people on to it. Yeah, you know, like modern romance. I'm sure you people only heard about it because someone said, "Right, you've got to see this." Yeah, and I think um, it's been. I think I saw uh, Janet Maslin's review of uh, In Law said something about it being a cult classic from the day it was released. So it was definitely one of those that I don't know if it was a blockbuster hit, but well, that says it all. Yeah, and she was one of the only reviewers who I would uh, salute. Well, we finish here with a couple of things. Actually, let me look real quick about the trivia. Because sometimes there's a couple of fun things. Oh, um, after the 2003 remake came out, uh, Alan Arkin called Peter Falk to congratulate him on the great reviews from the original film because the remake was getting panned so much. <laughs> so he just wanted to congratulate you on your performance. That's fantastic. <laughs> All these years later because just a bad idea to remake that movie. Yeah. And I love Michael Douglas and Albert Brooks, of course, is a genius, so. Yes. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, and apparently Marlon Brando was a huge fan of that movie. Said he saw it 20 times and imitated uh, Alan Arkin's yeah, line Alan, deliveries. I had Alan tell the story on the show because he had told me of getting a call out of the blue at home by Marlon Brando, who invited him to his house. 
Wow. And that excursion of going to Marlon Brando at his home uh-huh. is reason enough for people to pull up the episode on Kevin Pollock's chat show of Alan Arkin. <laughs> because uh, I, I don't want to do it a misjustice by paraphrasing. Yeah. And, and I'm going to go listen wrong. to it after But it, it's, um, it's, you know, and he said the weirdest part about the dinner was I couldn't really get him to talk that much. He would just impersonate me. You know, uh-huh. He would just do lines <laughs> from the movie. Yeah. All through dinner. And then we were released. My, wow. My wife and I. Yeah. He's very engaging and wonderful. Um, and um, uh, I, I truly feel blessed to have become friendly. And Yeah. Like one of the, we mentioned Sketchfest. One of the, my great joys was, um, Maybe three, four years ago, uh, Cole Stratton, who is one of the programmers, uh-huh. one of the three founders, he's always looking for ways to in- include me as a moderator of uh-huh. something. So he got Alan Arkin to come up to San Francisco for a screening of the in-laws. And right beforehand, I interviewed Alan Arkin. Nice. In front of the – and is that the Castro, the giant, uh-huh. the biggest audience there. Um, and that was, you know, and then while the movie played, actually, Alan and his wife, Barbara, Jamie and I went to a Chinese restaurant for dinner instead of staying for the movie. Oh, wow. We were all so familiar with it. Yeah. And, um, you know, the the dinner was probably as funny as the movie. Yeah. That's so great. You're a lucky dude. I am. And I, but, but I'm also, uh, painfully aware of it and ridiculously grateful. Yeah. Ridiculously. That's awesome. Uh, So we finished with a couple of quick segments. Uh, One is called What Ebert Said. This movie is a complete disappointment. Big Roger Ebert fan. It's always Thumbs down to the usual suspects. (laughs) Did he? Yep. No way. I was with him in a a buffet line. No, no joke intended. (laughs) No joke intended. After the world premiere at Cannes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's surprising. And he said, yeah, didn't really get it. Man, that's weird. Really weird because he like came out afterwards. Loved. He came out afterwards and, made, and, and made a big deal. Of, oh, did he? About how much he loved. He recanted. It. But at the time, yeah. it was. Well, everyone gets it wrong. So uh, Ebert, uh, he actually loved In Law so much he wrote a special appreciation article uh, years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's one great quote: uh, One of the problems with a lot of contemporary comedies is they essentially they are essentially ramshackle nature of their construction. Too many of them are little more than an assemblage of gags and improv sessions, tenuously linked at best. Granted, comedy films, as a rule, should have a loose and spontaneous feeling to them, but too often one gets the feeling they're literally being made up as they go along. One of the great things about The In-Laws, however, is that it is a perfectly constructed screen comedy, one in which every single element fits together with jigsaw-like precision while still conveying a freewheeling attitude throughout. You remember the names of the pilots on the little plane? Was it Wong? Ling. Ling? I thought one of them. He he was going to be governor. And he said, home, what was this? <laughs> I can't remember. Was, Peter Falk was going on about one of the pilots, um, about what, their their uh, success back home in, uh-huh. their, in their native land. And, oh, man, just that little moment <laughs> on the little tiny four-seater plane. Yeah. Well, when uh, the other guys given in, uh, in I guess it was Chinese, the instructions on if the plane crashes and 
And again, Alan Arkin's just deadpan, just sitting there watching him. Like, yeah. what the fuck have I gotten myself into? Yeah, in fact, I had somebody on the chat show, and they they had – I do a segment called Famous Questions where I'll go out to famous people and get a question for them from uh-huh. them to the guest. And so I'm trying to remember which guest I had on, but the person I went out to and them had a connection, mm-hmm. which is the names of the pilots – on that little plane. Oh, wow. In-laws. Yeah, like Ling and Zeng. Uh-huh. Whatever it was, it was kind of rhymey. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, back to your segment. That's funny. All right, uh, and finally, we finish up with five questions. Mm-hmm. You can be as uh, as short or not short as you want to be here. So I think your audience has already had a pretty good no, I think, showing of I think my they want more. meandering and digressing. <laughs> uh, first question, the first movie you remember seeing in the theater? Huh. That's a tough one, actually, because my memory's for shit. My my um, yeah, I saw so many. And if you don't remember, that's fine too. You can pass on these. I I would be lying. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because I, I my memory is a mixture of about ten films. Yeah. So there's no one that stands out as the very first. Uh, well, you may not know this either. Then the first R-rated movie you saw. Um, it was probably something like The Graduate uh-huh. or Carnal Knowledge or, you know, one of those yeah. 70s uh, movies for sure. Boy, The Graduate, that still holds up. Oh, beyond holds I up. I watch that about once a year. One of the greatest films ever made for sure. Uh, will you walk out of a bad movie? Yes. Do you remember doing so, notably, or the last time? Um, it's been a while. I would have walked out of Mother if I hadn't been there, the new Aaron. Uh, oh, I thought you meant the Albert Brooks movie. Oh, no, no. I was like, wait a minute. Mother with the, uh, I should have said Mother exclamation point. Oh, is that? Then does, you would have known have that. Aronofsky's. I haven't seen it yet. Latest uh, Jennifer Lawrence. No good. Oh, God. It was like watching a pony die. <laughs> <laughs> That's my review. <laughs> and, you know, people are on the fence with that movie. It's either a brilliant work of art. Yeah. Or it's uh, my review. Yeah. So <laughs> that's yeah. really funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, guilty pleasure. Do you have a movie that you kind of go back to at, that may be a little embarrassing? Yes, I'm sure. Um, or it doesn't have to be embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> it should be embarrassing, though. I think you're right. I think it's a good topic of question. And it's. And it's especially good if the guests can think of <laughs> like Hank Azaria is a friend and his is Roadhouse, that Patrick Swayze movie. I love Roadhouse. Yeah, he can't. <laughs> but he lists that because that's like a perfect guilty pleasure yeah, where, you know, for sure, it's not a great movie. But they're just some of those that you can't turn away. Yeah. And there's so many good lines in that movie. Yeah. Like, so I'm trying to think corny, what, cheesy lines. What mine would be. And um, damn it. Really coming up snake eyes on this memory crap. That's all right. Um, and I'm only turning 60. It's the new 50, I tell you. Well, what's going to happen is you're going to text me gonna, these yep, answers later. I am. And I can always fill it in. I am. I am going to do that. All right. Because um, so punch. I do have guilty pleasures. I, I know I, it's probably like bad Al Pacino movies. After, after Al Pacino won an Oscar for yelling, yeah. um, <laughs> one of America's greatest actors wins an Academy Award. <laughs> For doing an impression of Foghorn Leghorn. Look at me. I can't see shit. Give me the trophy. 
So anyways, <laughs> after that, I started yelling so much in the 90s that now I sound like an old black blues player. That's funny. He completely changed the way he talked. Yeah, you point. know. Anyways, okay. <laughs> right. So there are some, there are, you know, like, um, uh, what was the one with Keanu Reeves where... Devil's Advocate? Yes. No, so there's a perfectly shitty movie yeah. that I can't turn away from. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that would be a good example. Uh, all right, and finally... That's a tea landlord! <laughs> If I'm the director, I'm like, Al, he's three feet away. Yeah, just bring He's back right across from you. I mean, there's no possibility that he couldn't hear you. That's his thing now, though. That's, let's do one where you just say, he's an absentee landlord. Right. Just okay, let me try that. Ready? <laughs> All right, roll sound. <laughs> he's an absentee landlord! Cut. All right, Al. Al, you're still shouting. Um, really? Because everyone felt like I just said it. There's a moment in the movie Heat, bringing back uh, Hank Azaria. Uh-huh. Was he in that? I know you like The Simpsons. So Hank Azaria plays Shirley's Theron's, uh, uh, she's with Val Kilmer. Oh, yeah, But she's yeah. having an affair that's fucking up Val's character. That's right. And it turns out to be the Hank Azaria character. Right. And Pacino's character and his crew go to see Hank Azaria in his office behind his desk, mm-hmm. and they're... They're trying to get a reaction out of him. And at one point, Pacino's character says to him, because she's got a big ass, great ass. <laughs> and off camera, you hear Hank Azaria say, oh, Jesus. And he was just <laughs> reacting to the ridiculous line reading. Yeah. Al- and, 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 and as Hank tells it, he was off camera. Uh-huh. So, in other words, the director did not have to include the sound uh-huh. of Hank Azaria, right. who is separately <laughs> mic'd, saying, oh, Jesus. But he, it's in the movie. Next That's time you watch the movie, look for, because uh-huh. she's got a great ass. <laughs> oh, Jesus. That's funny. Who's waving at you? I thought it was Josh. I'm sure I'm wrong. Are you expecting him? No, I don't think he's in today. Okay. Uh, and finally, yeah, movie going 101. Um what are your uh, when you go to a movie? Uh huh. What What do you do? Which I do constantly. I just went to um, we went to Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Loved it. I saw it two days ago. You did not love it. No, I loved it so much I can barely stand it. Yeah, I can't. I want to see it again. I definitely want to see it again. Yeah, it was a a miracle of a movie considering what kinds of movies are made these days and the big giant shoes it had to follow and fill. Yeah, and it and it uh, atmosphere was just perfect. I've never seen a sequel that so fully worked with its original. It's like this complete piece now. Yes. It was, I was just knocked out. And his love interest, Ana de Armas. Uh huh. She's Cuban, trying desperately to get her for this next movie after Oh, really? She's just take your breath away. Yeah, yeah. And a brilliant actress. Uh-huh. Not just a stunning face. So she played the, uh, the holographic, yeah. uh, yeah. Love interest. Uh huh. As you were. Did you see it here in Atlanta or? Uh, no, right before I came here. Oh, okay. So yeah. where do you uh, – not where do you see movies, but do you do you always try to sit in the same place? Do you get the same thing concession stand? Oh, yeah. I so, find that people usually have rituals uh, that they obey. We we only go now where we can get reserved seating. Sure. So yeah. Arclight. Uh, no, there's some uh, there's some pretty wonderful cinemarks near us. Uh-huh. So we saw the, uh, Blade Runner 2049 on the XD, which is a giant, giant. It's a version of IMAX, but same here. In That's some where ways I saw it. Better. Yeah. The XD. Have you mm-hmm. seen the XD? I think it's the one at 
they call it IMAX, but I think it's the fake IMAX, so it's probably what you're talking about. Well, it's just crazy sound and a giant screen. Yeah, the sound like was shaking me out of my seat Yes, for this yes. one. So uh, we'll go to that theater whenever possible, but otherwise reserve seating at usually the Cinemarks. And we'll sit in the second to last row. Oh, okay. In the center. Uh-huh. Um, in terms of ritual seating. Yeah, the older I got, the further back I went. Yes. Um, and then where, what was yeah. the next? Well, like, uh, what Concession? other? Yeah, do you have uh, other so, rituals? Yeah, so Jamie, although she's much younger, as I mentioned, her nickname is Depression Baby, because she won't <laughs> let me spend a dime. Yeah. So she'll... Do you sneak stuff in? She'll, no. Oh, okay. she, well, I do sometimes, but she'll uh, get the bucket and the debt charge size drink container mm-hmm. early in the season, and then you can refill it for less money. <laughs> Does she bring it back? Yeah, you bring it back. Uh-huh. But, but they set it up so that you can do that. Oh, it's not a They cheat. encourage their okay. patrons to keep the bucket uh-huh. and the cup. And That's if you adorable. bring them back, you'll pay a lot less throughout the year for a drink and a popcorn. Right. So the depression. So we walk baby. <laughs> in carrying these fucking plastic buckets and cups. And uh, you're not worried people are going to say like Kevin Pollock, man. No, he, I'm he's convinced they're luck. saying that if they recognize me. And so I'll carry in some contraband uh-huh. sometimes, um, and she'll sometimes sneak in her water bottle. Yeah, because she's depression baby. Yeah, I do that too. Yeah, even though we're getting some sort of. Popcorn. But there's something about paying like. Four fifty for a water. This, but you know this. how they have those thermoses, water containers that uh-huh. keep it cold? You put ice in them. Yeah. I forget what they're called. Yeah, yeah, I've got those. So, she, so it's one of those that she'll bring in because it's her carry around everywhere. Yeah, I did the same water thing. Water container. I'll do the same thing uh-huh. too. All right. Um, but I can't think of any other rituals. Uh, do you pee during a movie? <laughs> I desperately don't want to. Yeah, sure. But in the case of... Blade Runner, that's two hours and 49 minutes. It's Did you not have a to? lot of choice. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. Although, maybe not. Maybe I peed right before and I was very careful. Yeah, something like Blade Runner, I will put too much remember. thought into, like, yes. two hours before I'll cut myself off from drinking things. Doing recon. Yeah, yep. basically. Um, yeah. What are your uh, – have you talked about your rituals? No, no one's ever asked. Let's flip it. Thanks. Uh, I sit, try to sit toward the middle near the back as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, usually don't get any concessions. Interesting. Uh, unless I There's have booze. No, I don't like going to the boozy theaters. Uh-huh. Just occasionally, maybe, but then I'll have to pee because any alcohol just makes me pee sure. like, way too much for a grown man. Okay. So I won't drink or anything like that. Um, maybe some popcorn every now and then. Mm-hmm. But other than that, no, because I can't get those. I don't drink a lot of soda anyway. Right. So I'll usually sneak in the water bottle. Yeah, I usually get a sparkling water. Yeah. Um, we often get just sparkling water instead of a pop. Uh-huh. Not that anyone cares. No, this is the good stuff. Yeah. But I, uh, the, the Cinemark, uh, I think, but definitely the Arclight near us has a great espresso coffee, too. Although um, that'll make you pee. Also, yeah. Well, when I was in L.A., I tried to go see um, I lived in Los Feliz. So I tried to always go to the Vista, which several guests so far have, you know, talked about the Vista. Really? Yeah. It's just a, do you not ever go over there? It's, well, we're on the West Side. So oh, okay. there's, there's, sure. I know how it is. It's on the other side of the planet. Yeah. Why? Even, it's funny. Why bother? I could get to Atlanta quicker from from the West Side of Los <laughs> yeah. Angeles than I could to Los Feliz. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for coming in. My pleasure, man. All right, Kevin should, Pollock. Should your fans know that you were oddly not wearing pants during this? No, we'll just keep that between us. Okay, cool. All right.
So how fun was that? Man, what a guy. Uh, I could, like I said before, I could listen to him talk as Alan Arkin for the rest of my life. I would just follow Kevin Pollock around as Alan Arkin, and that would be a life well spent. So fun conversation. Kevin's great. What a great career this guy has had. He's really found his way in Hollywood from stand-up to working with some of the all-time greats in the business, and uh, just a really nice dude. And we've kind of become pals here. I was on his show. I'm not sure if that is out yet, but look for me on Kevin Pollock's chat show soon. And um, thanks for listening. And a quick shout-out to uh, the the social meds here. We got the Movie Crush Facebook page going, and it's kind of been a fun community and a subgroup now called the Movie Crushers, uh, which are the super fans. And I am active on both of those, and it's kind of fun to talk about movies with uh, with all you guys out there. So, big thanks for getting on board on the social media. Go tell a friend about Movie Crush. I would really appreciate it. it helps me out. And until next week, remember, silence is golden. Movie Crush is produced, edited, engineered, and scored by Noel Brown from our podcast studio at Pond City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Richard Blaze, and I'm a chef and restaurateur who has judged or competed on nearly every cooking show. And now I've found a way to judge on a podcast. On my new podcast, Food Court with Richard Blaze, amazing guests bring their food arguments to my court, and I settle them once and for all. You think ranch is better than blue cheese? Prove it. You hate pineapple on pizza? Convince me. The first season of Food Court with Richard Blaze is up, and you can subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards and It Could Happen Here, and uh, generally a guy who spends a lot of time bummed out about the state of the world. So in July of 2019, I traveled to northeastern Syria for a bit of a shot in the arm. And I got it when I discovered members of a feminist, anti-fascist, revolutionary project who are working to build a more equitable society. It's a crazy story, and you can hear it all on The Women's War. Our first episode drops on March 25th. Listen to The Women's War on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.